the Babylonians came in and destroyed Israel and took some captives back to Babylon. While the uh, Israelites were in Babylonian captivity, world powers shifted and the Persians took over the world. So here's a, a map of the Middle East, little Israel right here. Um, this is all Persian land. They conquered Egypt and the north of Africa and the, all of Greece and all of the Middle East as far as India. And the capital of Persia was this town right here, Susa. So this is where this takes place. Now, uh, the story begins with the king of the world, Asiaharius, who is, uh, is great and wealthy, and he decides to have a 180-day festival where all of his nobles from all over the world come, and he shows off the glory and the splendor of his kingdom. And at the end of that 180-day period, he says, let's have a, a week of drinking. So they have a, a seven-day uh, drink fest. And everybody is drunk, and at the end of it, he says, hey, let's bring out my beautiful wife for everybody to look at. So it says, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded his seven eunuchs to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. He says, I am married to a good looker. Let's bring her out to just look at her. Well, this doesn't go over real well with the queen, and it says, but Queen Vashti refused. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. If you won't come out and show off, I'm, I don't know what to do. So he calls his advisors and his administrators, and they do what they're good at. They pass a law. When in doubt, pass a law. So they say, here's what you should do. Banish her. That'll show her. And then send a letter to the rest of the world telling the women to submit to the men. So uh, here's what happened. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household. That'll fix them. So, uh, men, you're to be the masters of your homes. How's that working? Okay. So then, um, problem is now, the king has no queen. So the advisors go, we have this great idea. Let's have a worldwide beauty contest. And we'll, we'll take the most beautiful young girls from the world and fill your harem with these beautiful girls. And you can uh, take your time and uh, get to know them and then pick a queen. And the king likes this idea. Right? So they gather all these beautiful girls from all over the world, and there's one young lady named Esther. She is Jewish. She is being raised by her uncle Mordecai. And it says this. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. This is just the king's type. Remember Vashti, lovely to look at now. Uh, so uh, this is a beautiful young Jewish girl. Now, um, here's what they did. They gathered these ladies together, and it says, Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Azaharius, after being 12 months under the regulations, 
for women since this was the regular period of their beautifying. Now look what they went through. Six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. So ladies, there is your verse to tell your husband you need to join a spa. Right? A year of treatments. Okay. So um, here's what I want us to learn from Esther. Three, three qualities that we can learn from Esther, that we can actually all imitate. First of all, great quality of Esther is her contentment. What's contentment? Let me give you a definition of contentment. Contentment is trusting that whatever circumstance you find yourself in, that God is still in control. And therefore, you can spend your time discovering his mission for you rather than resisting and complaining. What's contentment? Contentment is saying, I'm in a bad situation, but I trust that God is still in control. So by trusting him, I don't have to spend my time complaining and being bitter and whining. I can get to the task of trying to find out what God has me here for and get busy with that task. Right? It's, it's uh, basically believing Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. It's believing that's true even in your situation. That's what contentment is. Right? Now, here's the problem. The average American's goal in life is not contentment. What's the average American's goal? Advancement and comfort. Advancement and and comfort. And God's job is to help me advance and to help me be more comfortable. In fact, many churches are built on that whole principle. God is your magic genie to help you live a comfortable suburban life. What is a believer's true goal? Shouldn't it be not my advancement, but the advancement of the kingdom of God? And what's God's job? His job is to be God, and my job is to be Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible. Whatever my mission is, should I choose to accept it, and I should choose to accept it, I accept it, and I live it out. And wherever that leads me, whatever situation, uh, I should accept that from God's hand. Right? Now, some of you may be saying, but you don't understand my situation. My life is hard. It it, it probably is. But are you one of 2,000 girls in a harem? No. That's a a tough calling right there. Yanked from your family and now you're one of 1,000 or 2,000 girls in a harem. But Esther says, I'm here for a reason. It says, when Esther was taken to King Azaharius into his royal palace... The king loved Esther more than all the women. I'm sure he didn't love her because she was bitter and resentful. No. He loved her. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So let me just ask you this. Would you say your life is characterized with the word contentment. 
Are you content with the situation you find yourself in? Or would you say, no, honestly, discontentment characterizes my life more. Right? One view says, God must have made a mistake. The other view says, no, God is sovereign. He knows exactly what he's doing. One view says, the goal of my life is my comfort and my advancement. The other view says, no, the goal of life is the advancement of the kingdom of God. One view says, a beauty queen like me shouldn't have to go through this. The other view says, whatever beauty I have, or brains, or money, or influence, is all to be used for the kingdom of God. Contentment. Number two, second quality, courage. Courage. You know, um, one of the king's advisors is a wicked man by the name of Haman. And uh, Haman loved his power. Whenever he would leave the palace, he required the people in the streets of Susa to bow to him, and he loved the power. And everybody would bow to him except for one guy, Esther's uncle Mordecai. We'll call him Uncle Mort. Uh, Uncle Mort will not bow to anybody, and Haman becomes enraged. So here's what he does. He says, that Mordecai, he's a Jew. I hate those Jews. And he writes up a decree for the king to sign that all the Jews in the world would be slaughtered. This was the first Hitler. And um, I don't know, maybe the king was drunk or maybe he was tricked, but he signs the decree. So now on a certain date, it is set that, that all the Jews in the world will be destroyed. Well, word gets to Mordecai that this has happened, and he is mortified. We have a mortified Mordecai. Right? So he stands outside the palace, and he talks to one of the servants, and he says, get this message to Esther. And here's the message that he sends to Esther. He says, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to this kingdom for such a time as this. Esther, you cannot keep silent. You need to go to the king and open your mouth. And talk to him. Now, um, what we learn later is that nobody could approach the king without being summonsed. Legally, that you could have your head chopped off if you entered into the king's palace without being summonsed. And Uncle Mort is saying, you got to go in there. you got to risk your life. And who knows that you have come to such a position for such a time as this. Right? Now, um, Esther then calculates this all out, and she concludes, maybe I'm not the queen of the world for my own sake. Maybe I'm not here just for the spa treatments. Maybe I'm here to save the Jews. Now, let me point out something rather interesting. This is not one of those Bible stories where God audibly speaks. You know, in a lot of places, you know, God audibly speaks. Um, in a, a burning bush, he speaks to Moses. You're going to deliver my people. Pretty clear what the plan is. Right? To Gideon, mighty warrior, you're going to deliver my people. Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. 
No, no audible voice from God. In fact, this is an interesting book. God's name is not even mentioned. But she can read the circumstances. You know, in over 20 years of pastoring, I have never heard an audible voice from God. I think we learn a lesson here that many times the way God wants us to make decisions is by reading the circumstances, reading his word, reading the circumstances, and saying, hmm, might I have been placed here for such a time as this? There's a who knows factor. All right? And who knows? Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? You know, I think one reason that drives people to always be saying, God spoke to me, God told me. You say, did he audibly speak to you? No, no. Well, how did he speak to you? Well, I just know it. And, and we want to convince ourselves that it's absolutely God's will. So we convince ourselves that it's God who's absolutely spoken to us. And I want to say, you know what? A lot of times there's a who knows factor. You see, we so want to eliminate risk that we'll go so far as to blame it on God. Now, I think reading the circumstances, God would be leading her to approach the king. But there's a lot of who knows factors in every decision we make. Now, let me give you this principle. God's will is not always choosing the safest plan. A lot of people say, well, God wouldn't want me to take a risk. You know, Erwin McManus is a pastor, and he says, I hate the saying that the safest place to be is in the middle of God's will. Why? Because people turn that around and they say, well, I will always know God's will because it's always the safest choice. No. This isn't a safe choice. She has to risk her life. And it appears to be, who knows, it appears to be God's will, and it's risky. Esther finds herself as queen of the world. She has great influence over the king, but not even the queen can approach the king unannounced. So she says this. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. If he chops off my head, he chops off my head. Now, let me ask you a question. Aren't point one and point two in conflict, be content, be courageous. Be content with your life situation, be willing to die. Aren't these in conflict? No. Why? Because contentment is not laziness. Right? Contentment is not laziness. Laziness says, well, this is my lot in life, I'll just play it safe and get through. I'll endure. Contentment or godly contentment says, this is my mission. And I'm willing to risk it all. 
or maybe better phrase, leverage it all for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Right? When's the last time you took a major risk for the advancement of the kingdom of God? When's the last time you risked your job, a relationship with someone in your family, a relationship with a friend of yours, for the sake of the gospel? Another question. How are you training your children? Are you training them to be safe, prosperous, comfortable suburbanites? Is that the highest value? Or to be risk takers for the sake of the gospel? You say, well, how do I train them? What's the curriculum? Your life is the curriculum. The way you live is the curriculum. Do they see you? Elevating safety as the highest value? Or do they see you out on a limb, risking your friendships, risking your job, risking your comfortable life for the sake of the gospel? Courage. Now, let me just throw this out. Where does the cross fit in here? I think Esther's a type of Christ. She risks her life, and in her case, she's a hero who risks her life, but her life is spared. Jesus is a hero who risks his life, and his life is not spared. He gives his life on our behalf. But I believe she's a type of Christ. Now, one more thing, by the way. There's a picture from the movie of Esther approaching the king. Here's King Hotshot down here, and she's entering. Now, um, one last quality of Esther, and that is confidence. Not self-confidence. See, if this were a health-wealth church, we'd say, you need to have confidence in yourself. No. Her confidence is in who? God. Hello? God, right? So, let's go back to Mordecai. He says, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent, now if we were to stop right there and not look at the rest, for if you keep silent, you might think it would say, all the Jews will die. There's no hope. You're our only hope. Does Mordecai say that? No. He says, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. (laughs) God's not going to let his people die. So if you say no, don't worry, God's got it covered, all right? But you and your, your father's house will perish, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Right? She looks at, at the situation. She says, yeah, God has promised that he will preserve his people. The only question is, do I want to get in on the victory party or not? Do I want to be part of the celebration or not? Now, let me quickly cover the rest of the story. Here's what happens. Esther approaches the king and he extends his scepter. He was sweet on her, right? And she leveraged that for the advancement of the kingdom. And he extends the scepter. He says, hey, sweetie, what you doing? And uh, 
She says, hey, I've, I've got this banquet that I've prepared for you. Would you join me tonight? He goes, oh, of course. Oh, and she says, can you bring Haman, your advisor? So uh, they go to, to dinner and she prepares a feast. And then he says, now, what did you want to talk to me about? And she says, well, what I wanted to talk to you about is, will you join me again tomorrow night? See, she's biding her time. She's reading the mood. She's checking things out. I didn't understand this. My wife had to explain it to me. You don't just dump the information. You've got to just read the, you've got to finesse the situation. Ladies know how to do it. I don't know. I don't get it. Okay. So, um, Haman leaves after this dinner, and he's feeling pretty important because he just got invited to this private dinner between the king and the queen. And uh, as he walks out, he's feeling good. But Mordecai, that Jew, will not bow to him. So he goes home, and he's got his family and his friends. And uh, this is what he says. He says, And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even uh, Queen Esther, uh, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she's prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by uh, by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gates. Can't stand that Mordecai. You know? Then his lovely wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. You know how, long, how high that is? That's 75 feet. That's seven stories high. <laughs> it's kind of overkill, literally, overkill, right? Um, be made, and in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So you, you hear the guys pounding the hammer, and they're building this 75-foot gallows, all right? So um, here's what happens. That night, the king can't sleep. And I guess they didn't have Ambien back there. So he says, bring in one of the law books and just read it to me. Read some things. So somebody comes in and starts reading some things that had happened in the court. And he discovers that there was a plot to take his life a while back. Yet somebody exposed it. And the person who reported it was Mordecai, Uncle Morty. And the king says, well, Mordecai saved my life. I'm going to honor him tomorrow. So the next morning, he's walking around thinking, how do I honor Mordecai? How do I honor Mordecai? And just then, evil Haman comes in. By the way, when uh, the Jews, once a year during Purim, they read this story, and the kids, whenever they mention Haman's name, they're given noisemakers, and they make noise to sound out, to, to, you know, to, to cover up the name of Haman, because he's so evil. Right? So Haman walks in, and it says, So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? <laughs> so he thinks the king is saying, how can I honor you? Because who else would want to be, you know, he would want to honor more than me. And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. And the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be Hand it over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let 
Let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. There's your plan, king. And the king says, Great, go get Mordecai the Jew, and you lead him around on a horse. (laughs) So in humiliation, Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Well, that's the beginning of his downfall. Um, That night at dinner, the queen says, I got to tell you something, king. There's a plot afoot to kill all of my people. The king says, what? Who is behind this? And she says, Haman. He becomes furious and he hangs him on the 75-foot gallows. Isn't that a beautiful story? Okay. Now, um, the way the story ends is this. In Persia, if a king passes a decree, it can't be undone. But you can pass another decree to offset the first decree. So uh, the, the Jews are still going to be slaughtered on a certain day, but then he passes a decree that the Jews can defend themselves. And here's what happens. Now, the rest of the Jews who were in the king's province also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. So the Jews not only survive, but they thrive, right? And then what happens to Mordecai? Mordecai, the Jew, was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, And he was great amongst the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Now, in conclusion, what is this saying? Is this saying, take a risk and you'll always win? Take a risk for the kingdom and you'll always win? No. She knew she could die. Sometimes you do get fired. Sometimes you do get killed for the sake of the kingdom. But here's what this is saying. So what? In the end, you do win. In the end, you do end up in the kingdom of God. To live is Christ, to die is gain. You're too narrow focused on the here and now. Expand your view. Of the glory of martyrdom, the glory of persecution for the advancement of the kingdom of God. So, here's the choice. And this isn't just for the moms, it's for uh, mom and dad. Is your choice to live for safety and comfort and to teach your kids that that's the highest value? Or is your choice to live like Esther? And to teach your kids to live like Esther. And if you perish, oh well, you perish. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this godly woman, this godly example. And Lord, we fail. We fail in courage. We fail in contentment. We fail in trusting you. But that's why Christ died. And we can brush ourselves off. 
and start again. And Lord, I pray that we would have this eternal perspective that we see in Esther. And may we live in such a way that says, if I perish, I perish. But I'm on mission from God. We pray that you would give us the courage and the knowledge and the wisdom of how to live that way. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.